Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Charles Pryor, and you're listening to New Books in British Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. People value loyalty. We prize it in our dogs. We loyally carry loyalty cards to claim discounts at our favorite stores and coffee shops. We follow sports teams, even when they lose. Loyalty is also deeply political. It is signified in oaths of office, in pledges of allegiance, and in the machinations of party politics. Loyalty, like justice, is taken to be an unalloyed good. As Don Corleone taught us, blood makes you related, loyalty makes you family. It's not surprising, then, that loyalty has deep and complex history in Anglophone political thought. The 17th century in Britain was a period in which political loyalties were shaped, tested, and sometimes fractured. Edward Valence is professor of history at the University of Roehampton, He has written widely on the politics of early modern Britain and on topics such as oaths and covenants, the revolution of 1688, and the radical history of Britain. In a range of essays, he's explored topics in political thought from the Renaissance to Thomas Paine. His new book, Loyalty, Memory, and Public Opinion in England, examines loyal addresses as mechanisms for the expression of public opinion and as links between the national and local contexts of politics. Ted Valance joins me from London. Welcome to the podcast, Ted. Hi, Charles. Nice to speak to you. So congratulations on the book. Um, It deals with uh, subscriptional culture, and you've been interested in this for a long time. It's a kind of a connecting thread in in a lot of the stuff that you've written. So what uh, what is subscriptional culture, and what draws you to it as a way of approaching the political culture of this period? Yes, well, subscriptional culture is we're really talking about things which uh, gain their their authority, their importance, their value from the fact that people are being asked to subscribe to them, uh, to to add their names to them, um, uh, to whether they sign them or whether they add their mark. So the kinds of things that we we can think about within this, um, some of which you've already mentioned in your introduction, are uh, oaths of loyalty, um, uh, petitions, and also obviously the texts that are central to this book, which are are, are loyal addresses. Uh, And and you, you did mention I've been working on these for a long time. It's quite frightening now to think that it is probably about a quarter of a century, um, in fact, that I've been looking at these things from those of loyalty through to uh, loyal addresses. And I suppose what's really fa- uh, fascinated uh, me about them um, from the beginning of my research is the opportunity to think about how individuals engaged with politics in the early modern period and and to sort of try where where possible to sort of get a sense of, of what that meant for them, subscribing to an oath, subscribing to a petition, subscribing to a loyal address, what that act of subscription, that kind of individual political commitment meant. But also, of course, one of the things that's really important in the period that 
I'm talking about here and other scholars have talked about is uh, not just individuals, but uh, collections of people, large numbers of people, thousands of people subscribing to these kinds of texts and what that kind of mass political activity meant, what was the significance of, of trying to get as many people as possible um, to, to, to subscribe to a particular text, an oath, and address a petition. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the Article 50 petition there and that the fact of the numbers of people subscribing to that is obviously something that was felt to be of, of particular importance right now. And, and that's something that's even more, in a sense, revolutionary in the period that we're talking about, where earlier in, in, our, in, in the early modern period, um, the idea of kind of opening up politics in this way um, would, would still have been very, very controversial. Um, so, so those are the things that kind of fascinated me uh, about it. What does it mean for the individuals concerned? What does it mean in, in a broader sense to have these kind of um, you know, this broadening, if you like, of the political nation going on? So in, in the period of early modern England specifically, there are some famous uh, petitions or documents called petitions. One might be the, the petition of right. But what is a, what is a loyal address uh, and what distinguishes um, a loyal address from, from, say, a petition? So what really a loyal address is, is um, a declaration of loyalty, but from a, a, a corporate body rather than from, from an individual. So they're typically in the period that I'm discussing from, from official bodies. Uh, so from grand juries, um, from civic corporations, um, from counties, uh, rather than rather than being a kind of individual statement of loyalty as might be through, through an oath of, of loyalty. Um, but they share some similarities with petitions in that they in the period that I'm talking about, or can also be subscribed by very large numbers of individuals, by um, thousands of individuals. But unlike petitions, they're not ostensibly making requests for remedy of a grievance, although that can actually be part of it. They're offering the the, the uh, loyalty of that community, uh, standard phrases of things like offering lives and fortunes of that community to a monarch, or earlier in the period that I'm talking about, actually, to the Lord Protector, to Oliver Cromwell, to Richard Cromwell. Um, and they can also be offering congratulations or thanks. So it, it's often the case that addresses are being issued after, say, the accession of a new monarch, or after a military victory, or after the birth of a new royal heir would be some kind of standard um, moments to to uh, to issue a loyal address. And this is a this is a um, a form that's actually still with us today. So uh, when Elizabeth II had her diamond jubilee, uh, various what so-called privileged bodies in the UK issued law addresses to her. So it goes right into the modern period as well. This is still a kind of formal way in which congratulations uh, are offered to the monarch. So in terms of the uh, the modern ones are are, are ceremonial or, or sort of ritualized, and I guess we'll come back to to aspects of that uh, later on. But in terms of it's the connection of loyal addresses to public or popular politics, you say that in in the early modern period, uh, when we're really talking about the seventeenth and, and early eighteenth century here, uh, you said say that a critical political public emerged in this period. So 
what defines uh, the public in in this period, and what is its uh, relation to that monster master con- Habermasian concept of the public sphere? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think this is obviously, as you, you're acknowledging there in the question, been been a massive uh, subject of historical debate. Um, primarily, I'd say sparked off by. Uh, the translation of Habermas's work into English, as well as in the kind of broader sense by a kind of um, uh, more homegrown, if you like, reaction to uh, revisionist historiography, which was focusing, I think, quite a lot more on, if you like, political elites and um, rather more traditional sources for uh, political history. Uh, and so those things have come together to to provide this broader kind of examination of um, political culture and and the idea of a a political public. Uh, My book is engaging with that um, in really, I guess, critiquing both Habermas and and some of the kind of historical work um, on an early modern public sphere in that I, I think, you know, I'm doing quite a lot of the similar things that other historians have done in terms of critiquing Habermas by saying that it doesn't map with what we see on the ground, what we see in terms of the empirical evidence. So the idea that this is, um, you know, entirely located uh, or, you know, the critical moment is post-1688, that it's very much about this sort of enlightenment culture, uh, culture of coffee house sort of discussion and all the rest of it, that it's very much separated from the state. I go along with other historians such as Peter Lake and Stephen Pincus, who've you know criticised that picture and argue, for example, that we can see these kinds of things happening much earlier, um, that we can see it um, being situated in lots of different kinds of arenas um, that we can also see. And I think this is really important in the case of law addresses, the state playing much more of an active role in this story of the development of a kind of sense of a political public. Where I guess I would be, uh, I, I'm, I'm taking, I think, a different tack from those historians is that I'm more aligned with Habermas, I think, in the sense that I, I think of this public as very much a kind of conceptual thing. Um, and in some senses, I'm less rooted in the kind of sites, physical sites of uh, political discussion. So coffee houses feature in the book, um, but they don't really feature in the same way as kind of generators of this of this public um they uh th- there there are other ways in which i think um and in some ways the kind of separation of political discussion from particular physical sites is important and and this is one of the things i think that print does um very importantly in this period and in the case of law addresses is actually create this kind of separation uh, from physical spaces uh, and enable instead this more kind of um, conceptual awareness, for want of a better way of putting it, uh, of of um, public opinion. And in that sense, I've actually been influenced by other kind of modern uh, communication theorists, uh, in particular Michael Warner um, and his work on the way in which kind of a sense of a public it can really be generated um, by a kind of reflectiveness in public discussion, and in particular the importance of kind of timeliness and what he refers to as this kind of sort of temporally structured 
discussion. So the way in which, for example, emergent news culture is important in that respect, and also in a way the kind of um, cataloging um, and compiling of, of printed material to kind of develop a history uh, of that discussion is important because what you start doing then is actually kind of mapping shifts in public mood, shifts in public opinion. So, so we're no longer just kind of in this kind of almost sort of perpetual now, which I think has been a, a focus of, of some of the discussion is that sort of development of a sense of, uh, of, of this sort of immediate moment. It's also about um, a, a developing an awareness of political behaviour and political opinion over time, which is really critical in the case of loyalties, because it's not just about what you're prepared to say you want to, you know, who you want to kind of pledge your loyalty to at a particular moment, who you're promising your life and fortune to at a particular moment. It's how that pans out over the course of several years and decades. And of course, in the 17th century, this era of revolution, political instability, political crisis, it's really difficult for people to actually be kind of fixed in terms of their political loyalties. They're being pushed from pillar to post in a lot of ways. And then that leads to lots of very kind of interesting uh, discussions about those kind of prior commitments and what they now mean. So the, the source base then is, it's, it's a sort of a social, I guess, uh, would it be correct to say it's a sort of a social history of political communication? Uh, yeah, I think to to some extent it, it is, and one of the th- one of the things that I'm I'm really keen to do, um, and it kind of follows on from from my earlier work, but I think it's you know was really important in terms of understanding um, in a more fine grained way who these who 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 the public are that we're talking about is to is to look at um, the manuscript evidence as well as to look. Um, at the, the the printed evidence that we have uh, for addressing activity, uh, I mean, we we have thousands and thousands of these addresses in print um, through the pages of contemporary uh, newsbooks, early newspapers. I mentioned compendia of these texts. They're also kind of broadsheet and pamphlet productions. Um, it's harder though to find um, their manuscript equivalent, partly because these are in some senses, ephemeral texts. And, and as with, uh, I think, manuscript petitioning, um, particularly the more peti- uh, political petitions um, surviving more in uh, print um, than in manuscripts. And actually, you know, to go a little bit off topic for a moment, this is one of the things in some ways that hampers uh, some of our research in, in some key areas of things like the leveller movement. You know, we would really love to know who all these people were who were subscribing to the level at large petition in September 1648, or I would anyway, I don't know if anyone else would, but um, uh, but we don't always have access to that, that original material. So part of the research process was just trying to find as many, uh, you know, manuscript records um, uh, of, of these addresses as possible. Uh, so that was, you know, uh, going through catalogues to find as many references as possible, going, going to those archives, looking at that material. Um, and even within that material, a lot of what you find often in manuscripts is not subscribed texts, but drafts uh, of these addresses. And they're valuable in their own way because they tell us something about the process 
of of developing these texts of communities agreeing on a particular statement of loyalty um but they're not always giving us the access into okay who was prepared to sign up to this or who who did sign up to this uh, particular statement of loyalty at uh, a particular moment um and and so i i've then uh, do, doing the work because those particularly because those instances of subscription records surviving being quite limited of drilling down into those records of doing kind of further research into the biographies of those individuals trying to pair it up with other kind of name rich uh, material so i make use of harsh tax uh, records taxation records in the book that give us a sense uh, both of the kind of social status of these individuals where we can possible their religious and political background but also they're the geography uh, of subscription as well so which is one of the things that the tax records uh, give us some evidence of and that gives us a sense too of how actually representative uh, these documents are so one of the things that I look at in real depth within the book is uh, the Leicestershire address to Richard Cromwell in 1658 and one of the things that's interesting there are lots of things interesting about that but one of the things that's interesting is that we can see that this is not an address that actually uh, has kind of broad coverage across the county. Um, there, are, there are very obvious hot and cold spots across the county, um, areas where there are kind of virtually no subscriptions and areas where we get lots and lots of subscriptions to these texts. And that might be suggesting all sorts of things about kind of political uh, influence in certain areas uh, uh, as opposed to others. Maybe also actually uh, to do with um, uh, a religious uh, geography of the county as well, because some of the areas where we see uh, the least number, the fewest subscriptions uh, are in areas where we know that there was significant kind of Baptist strength as well, and um, perhaps connections there between kind of Baptist, Baptist movement and Commonwealthmen in the late 1650s may be coming into play as well. So it, it lets us kind of drill down into uh, the geography of loyalty uh, and also uh, drill down into, as you, as you were mentioning, the kind of social history aspect of this. How broad uh, socially uh, is this subscriptional culture? And and the evidence from the from the Leicestershire address is that it really is um, really pretty broad because there are people here who are not appearing in things like taxation records, and that suggests that they they probably you know below. The level uh, to be rated for things like the hearth tax. Um, one other uh, kind of really obvious and important absence from these records in, in virtually all the cases, with one possible exception that I, I mentioned in the book, is uh, is women and, the, and that they really don't appear in these manuscript um, uh, records of subscription, which is a contrast to other subscriptional texts, in particular petitions but also oaths of loyalty. And so that's quite distinctive there that on addresses, they don't seem uh, to, to be present. And I think that... Why do you think that, why do you think that well, is? Sorry. No, I was going to go, you've, you've asked me the question, I was going to go on and, and, and say that. I, I, I think this is to do with it as a corporate representation of the community and the less about uh, individual commitment and testing individual commitment. Those scholars who've worked on, um, for example, those of loyalty, and I think this comes across um, best in 
John Walter's recent work on the protestation, particularly during the Civil War, where um, this is part of the process of mobilisation. John Walter thinks, and I really agree with this take, that the reason why we're finding women on protestation returns 1641 to 1642 is because Parliament actually does want to mobilise as many people as possible, whether they're women or men, to provide material support um, for uh, the parliamentarian cause. Now, they're not anticipating that women are going to fight, but women could be providing money and other kinds of material support to the parliamentarian cause, and they want to get them on board. It's the same thing with petitioning. It's about mobilising individuals for the cause. And these kinds of texts are being less structured by that kind of, uh, you know, the the sort of corporate officialdom of, of the corporation, the county bench, and so on. So I think in contrast with addresses, the idea is more that the rest of the community is kind of being virtually represented Uh, by these texts. And that particularly becomes the case when we move into the restoration period and we see subscription becoming much more socially exclusive as well, Um, that we we see it much more, particularly in the immediate restoration period, as being an activity in which the elite, um, both the elite in terms of officialdom, but the social elite, uh, gentlemen, the aristocracy, are those who are predominantly subscribing to these texts. That particularly comes through in their, their printed versions, where a lot of these immediate post-restoration addresses actually structure the subscription in, in a social hierarchy. So we get the aristocracy at the top of the subscription list, then we get the esquires, then the gentlemen, and so on. Uh, that's not actually how they appear in the manuscript versions, which are all higgledy-piggledy. So it's quite interesting to see the way in which when they were put into print, they very much wanted to kind of show that 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 hierarchy in the printed version. That's brilliant. Uh, the method, the, the methodological uh, uh, acuteness of the book, it, it will be obvious to anybody that reads it. You've done extremely well with very difficult sources, yeah, really, really well. So we've, we've talked about approach, we've talked about method, we've talked about sources. Um, let's turn to context. We've mentioned, the, we've mentioned Richard Cromwell, we've mentioned the Restoration, um, and we, we do, uh, hopefully there are people in the United States who are listening to us who maybe have some grasp of this history, but maybe not. Um, so let's talk to talk about context. Uh, the first context that uh, I want to sort of zero in on is is the aftermath of, of the, the English Civil War, as we will conventionally call it. We could devote an entire podcast to what we could call that conflict, but we'll, we'll just call it the Civil War. And after the, the execution of the king, uh, you have the emergence of a sort of a non-royal uh, mini-dynasty headed by Oliver Cromwell. And this is the, the point where you really see the emergence of of, of these addresses as a thing. So why why is the 1650s such a generative decade for, for these things? Yeah, I think um, that's a really interesting question. Uh, for me, it's part of a process which other historians, uh, Jason Peace is a key one here, have identified of the regime in the 1650s really learning how to manage if you like, its news culture and manage um, public opinion. So one of the things that 
have been commented on massively about the 1640s is this kind of explosion of, of popular political culture and popular political forms. So mass petitioning, uh, pamphlet publication and cheap print publication going through the roof in terms of the number of titles, a kind of almost a sort of free-for-all, feeling like a free-for-all in terms of um, printed discussion uh, controversy. Although the reality is that through the 1640s, um, the parliamentarian regime is trying to put controls back on the press. Uh, And as the kind of political situation stabilises somewhat over the 1650s, um, we see more and more of that kind of control uh, being put into place. So one example of that is particularly to move into the era of of the protectorate. So um, uh, with with Oliver Cromwell uh, being, being the head of state, um, you you see uh, uh, print culture narrowing, newsprint culture narrowing uh, to these kind of state-controlled um, uh, uh, news books, um, French language equivalent, Nouvel Ordinaire de Londres, and its English language equivalent, uh, Mercurius Politicus. So uh, the, 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 the state is trying to kind of control what kind of news is, is being put out there, to, to put it crudely. And I think that addresses form part of this this project of trying to kind of control public opinion. So if we think about mass petitioning as kind of the more critical uh, and less controlled sort of, you know, cousin of, of, of addressing, addressing is it's more kind of well-behaved and kind of centrally managed um, relative. This is something that is uh, initially um, driven uh, by the accession of Oliver Cromwell to the protectoral title. And so we first really start to see these, these texts emerging as a way of legitimising this title of Lord Protector and of trying to show public support for his accession, for his elevation rather, uh, to, to that title. And that's something that then continues uh, in a really marked fashion uh, with the succession of his son, Richard Cromwell, uh, to the protectoral title in 1658. And so we see, see many, many addresses, both from the army and from English towns and counties, and actually outside of England as well, from English colonies, from um, from Scotland, from Ireland, uh, coming forward as well uh, to Richard Cromwell. The, uh, the, the title of the protector, though, I mean, there, there had been protectorships uh, of a sort um, in the 16th century, uh, during minority reigns, uh, why why was the, the the concept of a protectorate under Cromwell something that needed to be uh, given the stamp of legitimacy? Uh, well, it's it's for reasons that, uh, on the one side, this this is not a kind of protector Somerset uh, as you kind of 16th century examples where. We are, you know, in a position that there is a, there is a, um, you know, a hereditary monarch who is in, in their minority, who's too young to rule on their own, who, who is you know, going to be kind of, you know, looked after until they reach their majority, and then they're going to, to rule. Uh, we're in a situation where, you know, monarchy has officially been abolished, um, the Stuarts are in exile, and so there isn't really anyone else except perhaps King Jesus, uh, which, you know, a lot of, a lot of the uh, important figures in this period in 1650s think that um, the second coming of, of Jesus Christ is, is imminent. And if they're preparing for any king to return, it might be, uh, it might be Jesus Christ. 
but they're not it's not that kind of temporary arrangement here that we're talking about where there already is if you like a legitimate hereditary monarch who is just being looked after until they reach their majority on the other side you have got people who who nonetheless see this title of lord protector as too much uh, like um the monarchy that has been abolished as too much of a return um to uh, those previous ways of governing which for them have been shown to be um too likely to uh, to dissolve into tyranny um which uh, in any case are inimical to what they would see as the the, the kind of roots of political power in the people um and for some of them also is is actually a block for those who do have this kind of millenarian vision is a block to the return uh, of, of 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 Jesus Christ and his saints uh, to rule, and and so you're kind of caught between these kind of royalist, republican, radical Puritan um, views of authority here. And so what Cromwellians are trying to do is to try and establish um, the authority of this this different position that is neither you know that kind of explicitly kind of republican or millenarian kind of settlement. Uh, or, you know, very obviously a kind of, you know, a, a royal uh, monarchical uh, kind of settlement. But what we actually see in 1658 when Richard Cromwell succeeds is something that is very like actually a royal succession crisis, because there's all sorts of debates that are going on about whether Oliver actually did uh, nominate him as a, as his successor, um, whether actually there are other people who might be better uh, to occupy this position of Lord Protector. So, you know, other members of the Protectoral Council, like Charles Fleetwood, are being um, mentioned. People who have more of a kind of military uh, background, military connections are being discussed. And of course, there are also people who, who are retaining their loyalty to the Stuart dynasty and think that this is also, you know, potentially the moment uh, for the return of that, just as there are people who are thinking about this is a moment where a Republican settlement might be returned to one that is explicitly Republican rather than what they might see as this kind of, uh, you know, a mishmash of, of, of monarchy uh, and Republic. And so the addressing campaigns to Richard Cromwell pay uh, an enormous part in that debate. And one of the things that I found really interesting is the way in which these texts that are supposed to be and sometimes dismissed as kind of bland expressions of, 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 of sycophancy, uh, of, you know, um, of, of, of loyalty to, to authority, in fact, are really critical and, and making all sorts of interesting statements about their view of, of political authority at this at this moment in time. A, a debate which then continues on into Richard's only kind of parliament and uh, into the discussion that goes on there about his title as well. So there's a lot of uh, the 1650s, it's anything goes, there's a lot of political alternatives and the the state could have taken uh, any any number of, of directions. It could have remained a republic, it could have become almost a theocracy, but um, they opted uh, for stability, uh, which is one of the watchwords of, of British politics, or it used to be. Um, so the monarchy comes back in 1660, um, and it's Charles II, and the, uh, the the politics of religion flares up. Um, and when his heir, uh, or his, his legitimate heir, or I'm digging myself a hole here, anyway, when the Duke of York, his brother, is primed for the succession, 
there's, there's opposition to him, and this sets off a train of events um, that leads to the revolution of 1688, what is sometimes called the Glorious Revolution. How do addresses function through the very, very turbulent decades of the 1660s, 70s, and 80s? Yeah, I'm. Uh, that's it, it. So one thing that's really interesting, if we look at the earlier period, is that although we might see what happens in uh, 1658, 1659 with Richard Cromwell as evidence that, you know, even if addresses are interesting vehicles for looking at how different communities view political authority, they're, they're not successful in terms of keeping Richard in power. I mean, he does, he does. you know, after a matter of months, he's, he's basically kicked out by the army. So we could see this as, you know, that they're not really kind of substantial enough in that regard. But one of the interesting things, and this is one of the things, again, that I found from drilling down into these Cromwellian addresses, is the way in which they help communities build kind of political coalitions behind particular individuals or particular policies. And I think that's one of the things you can see happening over the course of the late 1650s leading up to the Restoration. It's one of the things that Blair Worden's written about as well recently in relation to petitions, declarations, addresses in support of a free parliament. So a lot of the things that are leading up to Charles II being restored are interlinked with the subscriptional texts, petitions, addresses, declarations, with different, quite disparate groups, you know, moderate pure, uh, parliamentarians, um, moderate royalists coming together to try, you know, you mentioned stability, to try and sort of work towards settlements that they think uh, will achieve greater political stability. Um, and, and finally, that seems to be uh, restoring um, uh, the Stuart dynasty. Um, one of the things that then happens, though, which I've already mentioned, is that we see a move away in the early years of the restoration from the kind of mass addressing activity, thousands of people subscribing that you see in the Cromwellian era. It's not, I would say, such a dramatic shift because even those Cromwellian addresses had tended to emphasise the way in which they came from authoritative bodies, so the way in which they came from corporations, counties, and so forth, um, rather than coming from just sort of, um, you know, uh, ad hoc collections of the so-called, you know, supporters, well-affected or whatever. But there is a kind of drawing back from the popular now, what we see that happens in the in the later uh, restoration period in the 1670s and 1680s is that you get the return of popular subscriptional activity. And this is triggered by this succession crisis, this exclusion crisis, as it's known, over uh, James, Duke of York's succession, because he's a Catholic and there's a lot of anxiety uh, in a Protestant nation about having a Catholic successor with all of the kind of memories of Mary Tudor's reign and all of the kind of anxiety about popery that have been uh, stoked up over the century or so uh, since then. And so there's really kind of frenetic kind of subscription activity that's going on in the late 1670s right through the 1680s. Uh, mass petitioning activity mainly being orchestrated by the kind of the early Whig party um, but also uh, on, on the kind of opposing side, mass addressing uh, activity in support of the line of succession, in support of James succeeding to the throne. And that uh, addressing activity in particular 
uh, continues all the way through the 1680s. The 1680s is the most frenetic period of addressing activity. We get thousands and thousands of these texts being uh, produced in support of, um, for example, the dissolution of Parliament in 1681, and Charles II stated reasons for doing that, um, uh, expressing relief at the fact that Charles II and his brother haven't been killed as a result of Whig plotting in the Rye House plot in 1683, uh, at James's accession to the crown in 1685, and also in support of James's policies in favour of religious toleration in the later 1680s. And that is really significant because one of the things that uh, I'm arguing happens over the 1680s especially is that that memory of addressing activity has its own impact upon um, uh, upon politics and upon James's freedom of action in particular. One of the things that Charles and his supporters is doing uh, in the in the uh, early 1680s is he's really ramping up through these addresses a kind of rhetoric about how um, the Whigs and their dissenting allies are basically the same people as the Puritans and parliamentarians of the 1640s and 1650s. And they want to do the same thing. You know, they don't just want to keep out a popish successor. They want to get rid of monarchy altogether. They want to get rid of the Church of England. Um, they basically want a kind of anarchistic, uh, you know, Puritan uh, Commonwealth free for all. Uh, now, there's some recent historical work which might say there's actually a, great, a germ of truth in some of that, but it's obviously. Uh, an exaggeration also uh, to a considerable degree. But one of the things that I think that rhetoric does is that because it's coming forward through these kinds of texts of addresses, uh, which are rehearsing these kinds of histories of the Civil War uh, uh, and tying the Whig Party to that history and tying dissent to that history, is that it then makes it very difficult for James uh, and his supporters so if you like, suddenly change the tone of debate in their addresses uh, and say, oh, actually, you know, toleration is, is good. Uh, we want to bring dissenters and Catholics into public life. Um, this is, you know, to the benefit of the state, all the rest of it, because they've been saying for the preceding half of the decade that all these people were terrible. They were anathema, fanatics, you know, king killers, all the rest of it. So I think that then puts all sorts of constraints on on you know the um the authority of those later addresses and how credible they seem and, and one of the things that's said about them is that they are uh, unrepresentative that they're kind of manufactured that they're not really the product of official bodies official corporate bodies but they're really you know the, the concoctions of these sort of small numbers of dissenters or small numbers of catholics and dissenters who are trying to purport uh, to present the the opinion of a certain county or a certain town, so I think that memory, uh, the mnemonic aspect, I put it as these of these texts, is actually really really important. It's one of the ways in which I, I really see them contributing to the development of public opinion. There's just awareness of that your community said something quite different only a matter of years ago, and why have you suddenly made this kind of change, dramatic change in your in your sort of public statement? Uh, of loyalty. I think that, that aspect of it is, is really important. So one of the striking things about the 17th century is the way that in, in, in some sense the, 
the political impulses, the sources of conflict are things that are very, very deeply rooted in English history, questions about succession, questions about religion, uh, questions about faction or worries about radicalism. But at the same time, uh, and, and this book sort of shows that, that there are the emergence of, of things that we, we would call, we would call modern, and I'd put that in, in inverted commas. And one of them is the emergence, you've mentioned the Whig Party and the exclusion crisis, and is the emergence of political parties as things uh, that had to be contended with. Uh, they, they, were, they were new. Uh, op- an opposition was new. Uh, a prime minister, as they emerged, was new. Um, and addresses uh, in this context become, uh, you describe them as becoming uh, adversarial. Uh, ad- adversarial in, in, in what sense? So I think if we were looking at the period we've just been talking about um, in, in the 1680s, we there's certainly an adversarial element there. Obviously, we have these kinds of petitioning and then counter-addressing campaigns and so forth. Um, but they are less uh, the property of particular political movements in that way, particularly addressing. So addressing, I think, remains in the earlier period a kind of um, a vehicle which is is largely or, pro, or campaigns and which are largely being initiated by the by the centre. And there are all sorts of interesting responses to that, but it's the it's the it's the monarchy, it's the court that is kind of prompting these campaigns. What I think happens in the post-revolutionary period is we see these political groupings, Whig and Tory, making use of addresses as part of their own kind of party, party political um, campaigning machinery. And it becomes very much, and this is something that Mark Knights has also written a, a lot about, becomes part of the of the process of electioneering in what becomes then a very feverish uh, period of um, uh, of elections. You know, very happening very very frequently over the course of the 1690s, early 1700s, and addresses are used as part of this process of trying to convince the voting public to to go for your party rather than the other party of the polls, which itself was a novelty. You know, if we're looking in the earlier period, um, a lot more of these so-called elections are actually selections. There's not really any kind of, you know, uh, contestation going on. That's not what's happening in the 1690s and 1700s. And the dresses are, pa- are playing, you know, a, a key part in actually convincing or trying to convince voters or move voters uh, to choose a particular kind of party or particular MP. Um, so I think that's, that's you know, really important sort of change there. Um, one of the other things that, again, this is something that Mark Knights has commented on, is there is the role that they're kind of playing in terms of political discourse and political language. Um, and, and one of the arguments that's made both by contemporaries and I think picked up by Knights is that all of this kind of frenetic uh, addressing activity is also leading to all sorts of anxieties about um, truthfulness in political discussion, which obviously has all sorts of contemporary, re- re- you know, resonances for us now. You know, you're, fake news, yeah, fake, fake news. news, yeah, fake addresses. <laughs> well, there's a lot of fake addresses kind of being, uh, you know, or being alleged or being, um, you know, purported to be be produced. And so, you know, you get people producing kind of um, uh, figure writers like Benjamin Hoadley producing, if you like, sort of glossaries for people of how, you know, what does this word actually mean? 
you know, when somebody says this, what are they actually talking about? Uh, you know, how do you, how do you pass these kinds of political texts? And for some people, and Daniel Defoe is probably at the extreme of this, they move to a position where they're saying, well, we've got to really, you know, we need to sort of almost put a lid on this activity because it's getting to the point where nobody really knows what anyone means anymore. It's really kind of, you know, uh, we, we, we can't trust what anyone is saying in, their, in the in a political uh, discussion anymore. You know, do they really mean 350 million for the NHS? No, I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, the, 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 they've got those kind of anxieties about sort of political claims and political terms um, losing any kind of mooring in, in, in reality. Uh, now, I think this is one area where I, I think that, again, we come back to the importance of, of the memory of earlier activity in here actually providing some kind of uh, assurance. Because one of the other interesting things that this sort of frenetic partisan activity does is it actually generates this memory of what different groupings are doing. And it's something that's reflected in print culture as well. So one of the things that I've mentioned already that we see happening is the generation of these kinds of collections or compendia of addresses. And one of the interesting things that they are doing is actually marking out different kinds of texts as belonging to different kinds of parties. So you'll see, for example, the printer John Morphew, in his collections, he actually gives them different typefaces. You know, some of them regular types, some of them are gothic, and that represents different groupings, you know, low church, high church, Whig, Tory, and so on. Now, what that does for me, that means is actually provide, providing a means of navigating the political landscape because you're saying, look, these are these guys, these are these other guys, here's what they think, here's what they think, here's what they did five years ago, here's what they're doing now, you know, can we trust them, can we not trust them? But the other thing um, that I think these collections are doing is, of course, they're also spinning these texts. Because, again, when we drill down into them, they're not nearly as partisan as they sometimes seem. And what a lot of communities are actually trying to do is just hedge their bets. Because there's a risk in not addressing at all, because you could be seen to be, you know, if, for example, you're supposed to be congratulating the monarch on their general's military victory and you don't send an address then you might be being seen to be a little bit, you know, lagging in the in the, the loyalty of your own community, no matter that this addressing campaign is being spun in a particular kind of political way, uh, you know, pro-Whig, pro-Tory, whatever it is. So a lot of communities are actually trying to sort of occupy a middle path. But what these compilers and commentators on addressing are doing is putting this kind of partisan gloss on it which is interesting in its own respect, because, again, it's about this sort of, you know, conjuring up public opinion and the shifts in public opinion over time, which I think is really, really interesting. And even those figures like Defoe uh, in particular, who, who seem to be suggesting this has all got too much and nobody knows where, where they stand anymore. Again, when you drill down into what they're saying, it's actually, again, a kind of, exercise in opinion management what they really want to say is these addresses are not okay but these ones are okay you know th these kinds of these kinds of subscriptional texts are the proper ones and these ones are the ones that we ought to discount because they're illegitimate again i think contemporary resonances you know um you mentioned the article 50 petition um and you know the rejection of it 
uh, I think was very much of the kind of this is not an appropriate thing to do because we've actually already had another legitimate uh, kind of um, exercise in canvassing public opinion, which was the referendum. Uh, and we don't want to pay attention to other kinds of uh, uh, ways of conveying public opinion because we've already had that legitimate um, you know, way of listening to, to, to the public and that's happened and that's gone. So it's you know there's lots of really interesting things going on here which are very much connected to the development of um, you know the political uh, the party system uh, in the in the 1690s 1700s. Sure, and the, the 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 sort of the the other aspects that come out in 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 the final chapters of the book, you turn to consider some stuff and topics that I think also have uh, people will recognize them in the current political context. I mean, there's a lot to, to look at, but you consider uh, the performance of loyalty, um, which is in, in some sense about access uh, and, and the language of loyalty, which is uh, something that's sort of conditioned by recent development uh, in the history of emotions. Um, what do what do these things uh, tell us of, uh, about how loyalty functioned uh, and evolved uh, towards the the end of the period that the book is concerned with? Yeah, so I think well one one thing is a sort of method methodological uh, point, which is that I've been interested um, for quite a long time in in the nonverbal aspects of politics and the and the way in which politics is done. Um, you know, not just through texts where the manuscripts are printed, but through um, through speech, through gesture, um, uh, through performance. And I, I think addressing activity has to be understood in all of those kinds of dimensions, because for communities, one of the really, really important things that they're doing by producing these addresses, and you mentioned access, is they are getting access to the political uh, elite. They are getting access to to the monarch, um, to to the Lord Protector in the earlier period, and they're using these statements of loyalty as a way, um, you know, to secure the kinds of things that they need. And so, one of the examples that I go into quite a bit of detail about um, in the book is is uh, you know this this relatively small minor trade corporation, the Cutlers of Hallamshire, um, and they produce this loyal address to Charles II. And presented at court, and they're doing this really as part of their campaign uh, to secure a tax exemption. They basically don't want to be taxed on the hearths that they use in their forges. They've been trying lots of other things, but one of the things they're doing is they're going through this kind of political performance as a way to gain access at court and influence at court. So it's a it's a lobbying strategy, but it's also again also about you know what what is the proper expression of loyalty. Um, and that's not just about the words that you use. It's the way in which you perform and you present these texts. So, you know, you need to have the right people accompanying these texts. You can't just have the hoi polloi uh, coming to court to present um, uh, your address. You need to have the great and good of your community. If it is um, a, a text coming from a corporation, it needs to clearly be coming from that corporation in terms of the personnel who are delivering it. Um, you know, that's also about showing that this text is genuine, it's authoritative, 
So the performance is really important in that respect as well. Um, so those aspects are really interesting uh, for me. And we there's also interesting things in terms of change over time with that as well. It's one of the things where I think that James II's practice, practices, again, are, are jarring um, with the, the earlier practices of his brother. So Charles is increasingly prescriptive about who can come to court um, and present an address. It should be the nobility and the gentry. And when James starts to pursue this policy of toleration, it also means that he's basically admitting kind of people of lower status to come present these addresses at court as well. And I think that is another thing that is starting to kind of set alarm bells ringing, if you like. Also, the way in which he receives addresses. And there's one particular example I use in the book where he's very, very rude to some Baptists who, who address him. And I think that's also showing a kind of clumsier, if you like, approach to the kind of ritual politics or the, the gestural politics of, uh, of loyalty as well. The language side of things is really interesting. It's one of the things that I think you mentioned history of emotions, and that's important to me as well. I think in your intro, you talked about the way in which loyalty is very much a kind of emotional value. It's something that philosophers working on loyalty have stressed a great deal. And I think that's a different way of thinking about um, political affiliation and the way in which we quite often talk about political affiliation in terms of a sort of, uh, you know, a more legally defined sense of obligation. This is about this is about feelings. This is about, you know, feelings of gratitude, feelings of love, um, feelings of thankfulness, all being expressed, you know, from uh, the people to uh, the monarch and being reciprocated. That reciprocal aspect of it as well is very important too. Um, and that, you know, trying to sort of trace how that emotional language uh, changes over time, I think it, it is important for understanding how how loyalty changes over the period that I'm talking about. So I did, did some analysis using um, uh using some software, corpus analysis software, in these compendia of addresses. And what is interesting is that though the language remains very much emotional, it does become to a certain extent depersonalized after 1688. So we're still talking about emotional loyalty, but it's emotional loyalty to things like the Constitution or to ideals like liberty rather than to a particular uh, royal dynasty. Uh, and so that's, you know, it's really interesting to kind of look at those things um, using using those kinds of techniques as well. Fascinating. I've been talking to uh, Ted Valance, who's professor of history at the University of Roehampton. The book is called Loyalty, Memory and Public Opinion in England. It's published by the University of Manchester Press. And I recommend it to anyone who is uh, boggled and depressed by the politics of the Twitter sphere. Ted, uh, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you, Charles. Cheers. Thank you.